0: Prior to this, we've done 15 weeks in the book of Revelation, 15 messages. Um, and uh, I will continue that series next, next Saturday night. I did, I preached uh, at Northwest uh, two Sundays in, in January, uh, Northwest Living Word in Rogers. And I wound up doing a sermon there uh, that I feel like the Lord told me to come back here and do. And so I apologize if you've heard this, if you were up there or you've watched that online or um, it just seems like the right time for this. Sometimes you just have to go back to to what it's all about. You really do. And so if if those if, if fifty people are in here that have heard this, I apologize. I I, I never like to, to redo stuff. I rarely do redo stuff, but um, I've, I feel like this is important, and so if I could put a scene in your mind that's, that's what I love about Israel is, is you actually stand in the very garden where this happened. They said the trees are still there in the Garden of Gethsemane from the time Jesus was there. They witnessed this scene, um, and in Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane, his uh, appearance would be deeply would have been deeply saddened. Probably a shaky voice, if you really understand what he was feeling. And we have him addressing Peter, James, and John. In Mark 14, 34, he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sad, overwhelmed with grief, so that it almost kills me. He wasn't saying, it wasn't like someone saying, oh, that almost killed me. That killed me. No, like, he meant what he said here. Um, remain here, keep awake, and be watching. This is not the same Jesus these guys were used to seeing. Um, so, you, so you have here Jesus Christ utterly exhausted. Many commentators believe he was repeating this prayer over and over while looking up to heaven. Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but but always yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him in the spirit. So in complete agony, in such agony, he has to have an angel show up physically. In the physical realm, strengthen him. He continues to pray. There's a famous painting of uh, somewhere in the Greek in here, you get that he's holding him. Right? Like he had fallen, Jesus had fallen backwards and he's, the angel is, is holding him up. Verse 44, and being in agony of mind, he prayed all the more earnestly and intently and his sweat became like great clots of blood dropping down upon the ground. So the angel uh, strengthened him, still in agony. He prayed more earnestly, more intently, The guy describing that, Luke was a physician. Luke the disciple went to medical school at Tarsus. He was a good friend of the Apostle Paul. He was more sensitive to the medical and scientific observations than Matthew, Mark, or John. Being a physician, a very highly educated physician, for that time he probably carefully investigated his sources of information for accuracy because he witnessed this And then wrote it down. And what we just read, there's no figurative or allegorical interpretation that's possible according to the rules in the language that it was originally written down that Luke wrote this. They didn't have things like he spilled the beans or he let the cat out of the bag. There were no figurative expressions in this language. He really did straight up, flat out, sweat blood for us. And I've been studying four or five different books written by different theologians and doctors. And it's the best one I felt was it's called The Crucifixion of Jesus, a forensic inquiry by Frederick T. Zugaib, M D PhD. This guy walks you through how how he felt. How he felt and exactly how he looked. Um, and so, and he's proven what the body goes through when, you, when the body sweats blood. Um, they, they say the most logical explanation on Jesus sweating blood, to sum it up, is this guy, this zoo guy, MD, PhD, uh, book Crucifixion of Jesus, a forensic inquiry. He says to sum it up, the most logical explanation for the hematidrosis phenomenon. That's what sweating blood is called. Hematidrosis. Uh, The severe mental anxiety due to a profound fear. So of his coming sufferings stimulating, stimulated the fear centers of the brain. And what it does, it sends out a general alarm to every center of the brain and evokes what Jesus was feeling is a, a full-scale fight or flight. Run, let's get out of here, or bring it on, right? Defend yourself. And this reaction lasted for hours, resulting in total exhaustion, only to end abruptly with a severe counter-reaction After the angel ministered to him, and Jesus had accepted his faith, this caused a severe dilation and rupture of the blood vessels, and they rupture into the sweat glands, causing hemorrhage into the ducts of the sweat gland. At that point, I'm paraphrasing this doctor, the blood comes out of the skin as sweat, while all hematidrosis has been recorded to occur from other rare medical entities the presence of profound fear accounts for the vast number of reported cases. Profound fear is what he's saying Jesus was experiencing. Um, the hematidrosis is a pure reflection of the severity of the mental suffering. And you know, I think Jesus was, we see that he's struggling with what he has to do. It becomes clear uh, I believe, and so does this author, that he was allowed to see, to have a, even an in-the-head vision or some type of vision of what would happen to him. Before you sweat blood, your heart starts to pound in your chest. You get a body-wide cold sweat. Pupils become dilated. All of his muscles tightened up, and he, he literally just trembled for hours in the garden. He was trembling. Mark 14, 35, and kept going a little further. He fell on the ground, okay, and kept praying that if it were possible, the the fatal hour might pass from him. That's what Mark says. He fell on the ground. It was unusual for a Jew to kneel in prayer. Go to the wall. They're sitting or they're standing. If you go to the wall in Israel, It was unusual for a Jew to kneel in prayer. He fell out of weakness. And he's repeating this prayer over and over, the Amplified says. After hours of just shaking, trembling, after he accepts his fate, the heart rate slows. His body's covered in sweat. At this point, his muscles start to relax. His face turns red. His blood vessels are now dilated. This causes the blood to rush into the capillaries and it mixes with the sweat. Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. It says blood is connected to the New Testament gift of righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. This is what we're talking about. Faith, faith in what? Belief in his blood. People overlook the fact that he bled for them in Gethsemane. Before the whole thing even started. And don't forget about what after, right after they detained him. Luke 22 63. Now the men who had Jesus in custody treated him with contempt, scoffed at, ridiculed him, and beat him. And then they blindfolded him, struck him, and asked him, now prophesy who struck you. 65, and they said many other evil and slanderous and insulting words against him. They reviled him. Have you ever been reviled by somebody face to face? Have you ever been reviled by a group of people? Reviled now, okay? I also believe that it was uh, at this time that this was done to him. In Isaiah 56, not the first statement, but it says, my cheeks, I gave my cheeks to those who plucked off the hair." And when it says, when they were pulling his beard out, I hid not my face from shame, and they're spitting. They're spitting in their face, his face, while they're yanking out his beard, and he looked them in the eye. He looked them in the eye. this They either pulled out his beard here in the original questioning, right after Gethsemane, or the Roman soldiers did it when they beat the thorns into his head. But the extent of the beating we just read about absolutely contributed to the overall physical condition of Jesus. Then he was interrogated by the father-in-law of the high priest. So it goes into questioning after being beaten a few hours after that, dawn was coming. Jesus had already been humiliated. He was exhausted. Then he was brought before the Sanhedrin, the highest religious body of the land. From there, a lot of details we could go through that I never noticed. I never noticed this. Well, I noticed this, John 19.1. Pilate took Jesus, scourged, flogged, whipped him. And we've talked about that many times, the, the flagellum, that whip, with, with three to six long strips of leather, um, being whipped with the flagellum was the usual Roman procedure before a crucifixion. You've all heard, we've all, the three to six strips of leather. Well, it had two balls on it. Two tiny little balls that looked like a tiny little dumbbell. They were connected. And connected to the the balls were sheep bones, jagged sheep bones. And they found a specimen of this in 1709. This is how they know about these little dumbbell shaped balls that the Romans would, would put on the end of of the flagellum. And the Romans didn't have any laws about the 39 stripes. That was Mosaic law. God told the Jews, you could never give someone more than 40 stripes. So the Jews would count to 39 to make sure they didn't do over 40. Okay? But the Romans, um, they gave many, many more just to show the Jews... We're not beholden to your Mosaic law. And the reasons the Romans did this, it was to weaken the individual so they would not put up a fight when they were nailing them to the cross. It was just to to, to weaken them. Jesus was stripped completely naked, shackled by the wrist to a fixed object, maybe like a, a low column. The weight on the end of the leather thongs wrapped around him. Those little dumbbells. When they make contact, and they would hit the whole body. They would hit the head, the shoulders, the arms, the legs, and what happens is those, those bits of metal, the little dumbbells, would slap into them and would cause the blood vessels to dilate. That's what goes into one of the things that weakens the person. Uh, the, the PhD in this book is saying if you can imagine the degree of pain if you received numerous severe blows to your rib cage, it's comparable to medical patients who suffer chest injuries. The effects of his scourging by those little dumbbells. After the scourging, large black and blue and reddish purple bruises multiple would show up immediately, all over. Shoulders, back, around the ribs, chest. Reddish purple, multiple bruises, multiple lacerations and tears, scratches to the skin would be all over Jesus' body, primarily where the bone on the end of the whip punctured and tore. And the muscles called the intercostal muscles, that's, that's, that's uh, like right in here between um, your, your ribs and your back, right? Around your lats. Even the chest muscles would hemorrhage and cause the lungs to collapse. A lot of people didn't even get to the cross, through this. And this doctor that wrote The Crucifixion of Jesus, a forensic inquiry, Dr. Zugaib, said that studies have shown that a single rib fracture from a severe beating can account for loss of up to 125 milliliters of blood just for a single rib. And Jesus would have experienced vomiting and tremors from this. His doctor says the victim would be reduced to an exhausted mound of flesh craving water and the scourging that Jesus received certainly propelled him into an early stage of shock. You ever seen someone in shock? Have you ever ever been in shock? You barely even know what you're going through. You know? People die from going into shock. All right, And also, there were lacerations. There would have been lacerations to his liver and his spleen. Skipping ahead, and then we'll skip back. Mark 15 44. After Jesus died, Pilate said, Why is he dead so soon? Called the centurion and asked whether Jesus is already dead. When he learned from the centurion that, He was indeed dead. He gave the body to Joseph. So we see here, Pilate is surprised that Jesus died so quickly on the cross. But what that tells you is he was half dead by the time he got there. Due to the extremely brutal treatment before the cross. Mark 15, 15 through 20. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, sat Barabbas free for them, And after having Jesus whipped, handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away. This is Mark's rendition to the courtyard inside the palace. That is the praetorium. They called the entire detachment of soldiers together. They dressed him in a purple robe. Remember this now. Weaving together a crown of thorns, they placed it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, greetings, good health to you. Long life to you, king of the Jews. And they struck his head with a staff made of a bamboo-like reed. They spat on him, kept bowing their knees in homage to him. And when they had finished making sport of him, remember this now, they took that purple robe off and put his clothes back on him. This is key. And they let him out to crucify him. So this detachment of s- soldiers I, I looked so hard. Is somewhere between 80 and 600. That's the best I can get. It could have been 600. It could have been as, as low as 80. They create this parody, this burlesque-type violent thing with Jesus. They put the crown of thorns on his head to contribute to the mockery. They file past him, kneeling before him, spitting on him. They take the reed away from him, and they pound those thorns into his head. At the same time, they're they're hitting him in the face because he was made unrecognizable. And most people think this is such a humiliating thing, but they're not paying attention to the physical suffering. I believe there's a reason behind the thorns. Just like the scourging. By his stripes, we're healed. There's a reason for that. Genesis 3.18. Thorns also thistles. This is God pronouncing a curse on Adam. Thorns also thistles shall shall it bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread all your life. And so this is a curse that Adam received. Basically, you're going to have to sweat, Adam, you and the rest of mankind until someone breaks this curse. You're going to have to stress. The Hebrew word here means if you look at the root word, one of the meanings is Adam was sweating through fear to feed his family. You're going to have to deal with fear and sweat and worry just to feed your family. So thorns were beaten into his head so you don't have to sweat through your life with fear. He was erasing that curse and he hadn't even gone to the cross. They have been able to narrow down those thorns to two different types of uh, plants over there in Lebanon and Syria. But the doctor, the PhD, MD says the blows from the reed across the face of Jesus against these thorns, these thorns, it would have been like a bush of thorns on his head, everywhere, sides, back, um, hundreds of thorns, you know, touching his head. And what happens is the blows from the reed across Jesus' face or against the thorns would have directly irritated the nerves and activated trigger zones along the lip, side of the nose, and face, bringing pain resembling a hot poker or electric shock. The pain would have lacinated across the sides of his face and deep into his ears. Anyone ever been hit so hard you feel it in your ears? With the ringing but there's a pain with the ringing. Exacerbations of throbbing bolts of pain would have occurred through these areas all the way to the cross. And during the crucifixion, he would have been reactivated by movements of walking, falling, twisting, the pressure of the thorns against the cross. So let's back back up, right? Pilate took Jesus, scourged him, had him flogged. The soldier twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, threw a purple cloak around him, and kept coming up, Up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews. Made made a little play out of it, this violent play. But look at it, now watch this. Verse four. Then Pilate goes out again. He goes out to the Jews. I never saw this. See, I bring him out to you. So that you may know that I find no fault in him. So Jesus went out in front of the crowd wearing the thorny crown and the purple cloak. Well, didn't we read that the Roman soldiers took the cloak off of him? So in the middle of that beating, according to John, Pilate brings him out. Why did Pilate bring him out? Because he thought they would let him go. He's like, he looks, this guy looks so bad that if they see him, they'll have mercy Because Pilate didn't think he was guilty. It says that multiple times. So Jesus comes out just looking like he had been through hell. Chief priests, attendants, guards saw him. Verse 6, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So this is after Gethsemane, after the beating of the original questioning, That happened to him after Gethsemane, after the scourging, and now after the Roman soldiers beat the crown of thorns into his head before the cross. We have a wretched-looking, beat-up Jesus Christ whose body had probably taken on a distorted look wracked with pain, vision blurred, barely able to stand, covered in blood, lacerations, abrasions all over his body. He had probably vomited on himself. And here what we have is Pilate thinking, if they see him, they will be merciful because of his wretched condition. John nineteen, eight through seventeen. So John, well, let's just go. This tells says so much. All right, let's do it. John nineteen Verse 8, so Pilate heard this. He was more alarmed and awe-stricken and afraid than before. And he goes into the judgment hall again. So they, they drag Jesus into the hall. And, and he, Jesus said, he says, Where are you from? You know, I mean, I don't think he said, Sit down, Jesus. You know, it's not the way it works. I'm sure Jesus is, he's kind of, you know, you know standing in front of him. Where are you from? To what world do you belong? And Jesus didn't answer him. So Pilate said, Will you not speak even to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you? I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would not have any power or authority whoever, whoever whatsoever against me if it were not given to you. How did, how did he say that? You would not have any power over me. I mean... Did he go clear for that statement? For this reason, the sin and guilt of the one who delivered me over to you is greater. Upon this, Pilate wanted, sought, was anxious to release him. But listen to this. I never saw this either. This is why he didn't release him. The Jews kept shrieking, if you release this man, you are no friend to Caesar. Anybody who makes himself out to be a king sets himself up against Caesar. And that did it right there. Pilate had to say, This can't get back to the Emperor of Rome. Or I'm a dead man for having mercy on the King of the Jews. And so, hearing this, Pilate brought out Jesus, sat down on the judgment seat at a palace called the Pavement, in Hebrew called Gabbatha. It was the the day of preparation for the Passover. The sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Here is your King. They shouted, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And he delivered them over to be crucified. Delivered him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, led him away. So he went went out, trying to bear his own cross to the spot called the place of the skull, Golgotha. What's the point of this? Why are we talking about all this? It's not Easter. 1 Corinthians 2.2, I resolve to know nothing, this is the Apostle Paul, to be acquainted with nothing, okay, he's talking about uh, spiritually, what are you acquainted with? To make a display of the knowledge of nothing, that means if I'm going to give any knowledge to you, no knowledge, and to be conscious of nothing among you except Jesus Christ the Messiah and him crucified. All of it. He said nothing. And then he says to the Galatians, these are churches. Galatians 6.14, but far from me to glory in anything or anyone except in the cross of our Lord Jesus through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If he gloried in it and nothing then it was in the front of his mind all the time. And we just read, he's telling the Corinthian church, he wants them acquainted with nothing. He wants them to be conscious of nothing else. And he glories in nothing except Jesus dying on the cross. I think it's interesting we have Paul saying he wanted to be acquainted with nothing else. He wanted the church members to be acquainted with nothing else. He wanted to be conscious of nothing else. And he wanted the Corinthian church conscious of nothing else except the cross and Jesus Christ. And so, then we have him in Philippians, okay? Philippians 3.8. So that's his focus, right? In other words, he's got that, minimally he's got that picture in his mind all the time. And then in Philippians 3.8, here he is again. Furthermore, Everything's a loss. I count everything as a loss compared to the priceless possession of a priceless privilege, an overwhelming preciousness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, of pro- progressively, it's a progression, becoming deeply and more intimately acquainted with him, of perceiving him and recognizing him and understanding him more fully and clearly for His sake, I've lost everything. I've lost everything. And consider it all to be garbage in order that I gain Christ. Through the cross, through glorying, thinking, understanding the cross, he was relentlessly pursuing something he called a priceless privilege. In the Greek, that means an overwhelming preciousness. Has anyone in here even felt an overwhelming preciousness? Sounds overwhelming. Of becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with Jesus and understanding him more clearly. We just read he did not care if he lost everything trying to get that relationship. How did he get there? How did he get there? What was his relationship based on? Well, we know already. Well, we read what he all was focused on, all he wanted to be acquainted with, all he wanted to be conscious of, all he wanted to give glory to, which means he was speaking it, he was thinking it, he was thanking him for it, and he preached on it, and he just magically winds up with this insatiable hunger for a relationship, a deep relationship with Jesus. Sometimes I lose sight, And all the things I have to do in my program, all the tongues and praise and worship and thanking him, I have to have a thank him session. Or I forget, unless I have an official session. Speaking the word, reading the word, listening to sermons, talking to him. You can go weeks without thinking about what we're talking about today, even thinking about it. And this is where everything comes from. In essence, the cross and the resurrection, what happened between the cross and the resurrection. But you don't get a resurrection without a death. All our authority, any healing, any signs and wonders, all answered prayer, a deep interpersonal relationship with him comes from an understanding of what he did. Can we put the sculpture up? What he did. This isn't, let, this isn't, oh, let's worship an artifact picture, right? Your, your imagination can turn that picture into what it really looked like. Because this is what the closest thing you can find. Completely and totally ripped to shreds. Right there, that is true love. Before we close on the cross, Romans four twenty five, who was delivered for our offenses, who was raised again for our justification. So he was raised from the dead. Why was he raised? For, so we could be justified. Romans four twenty five, who was betrayed and put to death because of our misdeeds, and was raised to secure our acquittal. Acquittal means not guilty. Oh, making our account balance. He was raised from the dead to make your account with God balance. What exactly is that? That's this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made Christ virtually to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in and through him, that means if you believe he died and rose again, you might become endued with and viewed as being in and an example of the righteousness of God. Not what you are, what you ought to be. Viewed, let's look at that. That you might might be viewed as being what you ought to be. Look at the words. He's viewing you as what you ought to be. Not what you are. Not what you are. That's a gift. That's called the righteousness of God. Viewed by God is what you ought to be. This is New Testament righteousness. That comes from the resurrection that says you're acquitted. This is what creates a completely open channel between you and God. Even in my 20s, just I can remember being completely gone on drugs and alcohol and still talking to God. Okay. You have to understand this part of your, your, your covenant. You always have an open channel. Always. Hebrews 8.12, I will be merciful and gracious toward their sins. I will remember their deeds of unrighteousness no more. Oh, did he just say he doesn't remember your sins? Well, is he lying then? Just to make sure no one turns that around, Hebrews ten seventeen, their sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. He said it again. He says it again in Isaiah. If, I, if the God that created the whole world so intricately with so much beauty to have a relationship with you through the New Testament gift that he gives you, your sins and law breaking from yesterday, he can't remember, see, because if he remembered, then he would view you as you ought to be. He would view you as you are, but he views you as you ought to be. If you're condemned, think he's thinking he's looking at you a certain way, you don't understand your covenant. You don't understand the new covenant. There's no condemnation in Jesus. Oh, I used to look at that scripture in Romans 8. There's no condemnation in Jesus. And then I'd read, uh, uh, unto, unto them that walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And I'd be like, I can't even drive home seven minutes and not be in the flesh. Depending on who's behind me, in front of me, sometimes beside me. And so, well, I'm out of that then. I, there's condemnation for me. I don't get that gift of no condemnation. No, no, no. See, see that? Those that walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, the translators can't wrap their head around all this. So they added it. That wasn't even written, that's italicized. If it's italicized in the Bible, it was added. By the translators. And so there is just no condemnation in, in, in Jesus. And so if you're condemned thinking he's looking at you a certain way, you don't understand your covenant. Can we put the picture of just the cross up? Uh, you see, see how it's connected here? It's like a puzzle piece where you, where, where you slide in the cross beam. All right? See, I've always preached this different. But I'm changing it because I think I, the four books written by these guys convinced me of what, what they believe. Uh, first of all, Jesus was so messed up that just try, he was trying to just carry the cross beam. Okay? He was just trying to carry the, the cross beam. And think about that. Crowds of people beaten to a pulp. People verbally assaulting him. He can't, can't carry the crossbeam. And, and they, they, they got him up on Galgotha, nailed him, laid him down, nailed him to the crossbeam, uh, not through the hands, um, listening, and I've said this in here before, this guy doing a podcast expert, um, but what he said is, is there's only one, one place it could go is right there, that nail. Okay? It's the only thing that's, hold them up, where it won't rip, rip through. And there's a nerve there called the medial nerve. The medial nerve is what you feel when you hit your funny bone. So those nails piercing the medial nerve destroys the use of their hands. Because the medial nerve is the main sensory nerve of the hand. And this is from a, this, this guy named Nabil Karashi. I, I got that from him, but just switching back and forth between these guys, um, at risk of sounding intellectual, which these guys are extreme intellectuals, some of these guys, it seemed like I had to look up one word per sentence because I didn't know what they, the words meant. But quoting again, Dr. Zugai on Forensic Inquiry of the Crucifixion of Jesus, after they put the nails into his wrist on that crossbeam, he was laid out on the ground. Okay, what they had to do, he's laid out on the ground, nails through his wrist. Okay. They, they, they put a Roman soldier on each side, and they lift up. They lift him up. They probably lift him up to their shoulders, right? So if, imagine Jesus coming up. He's coming up, right? But here he's still standing. And then a guy grabs him around the waist and picks him up. And so they take him over there. There's a post already in the ground, right? And they had to have it like this because of the amount of crucifixions that they did. They had to have these things ready to go. And so they also believe the Roman soldiers had a stair-like contraption on each side. So these guys, they've got Jesus, and they're stepping up these stairs to try to fit that thing into the post. And at that point, he's just hanging, right? His legs, there's no nails through his feet at this point. Once they get him up there, he's hanging there, Now, before they can put the nail through his feet, just from hanging there, this is where you get Psalm 22, 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. Psalms 22, you could do a whole sermon on that and relate it to the crucifixion. I'm poured out like water means he had nothing left. His bones are out of joint from hanging there just for a minute before they can nail his feet. All right, And the medical professionals say that would absolutely pull your shoulders out of joint. But still looking at Psalm 22, because you can travel a little ways with Jesus into his suffering, not all the way, reminding you, Paul said he wanted the Corinthians conscious of this. Conscious, focused. His heart is like wax. In verse 14, Psalm 22, he was emotionally crushed. He was heartbroken, really, really emotionally hurt. Who wouldn't be? He's probably spitting his face a hundred times. Right? His disciples, besides John, nowhere to be seen. Okay? Most scholars believe Psalm 22 14 is prophesying when it says, His heart was melted in the midst of my bowels, that he lost control of his bowels on the cross. So that's why his bones are out of joint because he's hanging there. But what they would do is that once they got him up there, once they got him up there, they would, they would bend his knees and put one foot on top of the other. Okay? And he had to have bend in his knees. And he's still hanging there. You know, bam, 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 bam. Nail that, that nine inch nail through both feet. So. When, you, when your knees are bent, you can breathe in hanging, okay? You can breathe in, but in order to breathe out, you have to step on that nail, right? It's the only way that, that you can breathe, okay? So we have Jesus hanging by his hands to breathe in. In order for him to breathe out, he had to push up on that nail through his feet, to put the sculpture back up. The whole time you're doing is up, down, up, down. No skin on his back. The cross isn't finished wood, it was splintered wood. Up, down, breathing in, breathing out for you, breathing in, breathing out for you, breathing in, breathing out for your sins. So hey, your sins and iniquities he could remember no more. Up and down. This was designed to keep them alive longer. The nail through both feet was designed as a form of torture because if they could not push up on the nail, they, could, they, they would suffocate because they couldn't breathe out. The Romans were able to tell if they were dead because they weren't moving up and down anymore. They had to make sure the person was dead because Roman soldiers could be executed if someone came off the cross alive. They always administered a death blow John 19, 32, soldiers came, broke the legs of the first one, the other one who had been crucified with him. These are the thieves that were crucified on each side. Luke 23, 42, I love this. One of the thieves says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingly glory. You know what, Jesus, that's Jesus. Did he look at him? Jesus said, truly I tell you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. How did he say that? How did he get it out? How did he? He told him. And then the sixth hour midday, darkness enveloped the whole land. This is where he was separated from God. Eventually you hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he ever called him God and not father. He was separated. So he, God, God, my God, my God. He said, What did he say? How many times does God tell us he'll never leave us or forsake us? He forsook him so he would never forsake you. And, and and by the way, it's not so hard to get saved. He just says, Remember me. Remember me. And Jesus said, I'll see you in heaven. So Jesus, in all the suffering, all the pain, I'll see you in heaven today. That guy probably been a thief all his life. So we read that the soldiers broke the legs of the thief to make sure they were dead because it keeps them from pushing up. Therefore, they can't breathe out. They suffocate. We know Jesus already had died, but another type of death blow is piercing the heart with a spear. Other types of death blows the Romans administered were crushing his skull with a sledgehammer or lighting people on fire. That's a... It was a wonderful civilization, the Romans, were they not? Isaiah 52, 14. For many, the servant of God became an object of horror. These people saw this stuff all the time. They saw the scourgings. They saw the crucifixions. But here, that many were astonished at him. (gasps) Look at him. His face, his whole appearance were marred more than any man's. That means unrecognizable. Unrecognizable. In the Hebrew, you looked at him, you would not know that's him. His form beyond that of the sons of men, just as many were astonished at him. His face was not recognizable. Psalm 22, 17, I can count all my bones. That means you can look down and see his ribs from the scourging. This was prophesied, that he could see his bones, he could count his ribs. Can we, you know, I respect Mel Gibson for the passion But can we put that passion picture up? I mean, that's not accurate. There is a victory sign, though, on the fingers. You see that? I don't know if that's on purpose. But that's just not even close. There was no structure to his face if you could not recognize him. It was probably just a swollen mess And if we look at the sculpture, pick. Which one do you think is more accurate after all that we've read? So don't let the devil diminish or lessen what he did for you in your mind. If you get nothing else out of today, I pray, as Paul said, that you are conscious of this. That while you're taking communion, while you're praying in tongues, while you're listening to worship music in your car, or while you're listening to 104.1, I don't care, that you're conscious of this going there, going there to his suffering on the cross, it helps you to understand that he did that. One day, I'm I'm thinking about this. I try to do this when I do communion. And he's like, I name name my enemies every day. The people that I know that hate me. I name them. And I pray everything that I pray for them, for myself, I pray for them. And it really will help you. It'll help you. It's selfish. It's selfish. It's not because I like them. It's not because I want to. But what I'm telling you is that's what it says to do. And And if you'll do it, it releases something in you. I've heard dad say, if you can pray for a person, that will keep bitterness out of your heart. Number two, it just does, I can't explain it. But the Lord says, I did this for them. I did this for them. Let's put that sculpture up one more time. Lord, give us this type of compassion for the world, for the body of Christ. Ephesians 3 says that may we come to know the love of Jesus, which passes knowledge, and then we will be filled with all the fullness of God. I feel like you can really know his love by taking yourself to the cross. This is the basis of everything we have. You have to have a death to have a resurrection. This is the basis of your authority, the basis of your healing. This should be the basis of your relationship with Jesus. We know it was with Paul's. How does it become the base? Like Paul said, being conscious of it. Hallelujah, okay. Thank you, Lord. I think as we close here um, I think it's important that that when you're trying to connect with him the main thing okay remember Paul said the number one thing is to know him deeper know him more intimately understand him more clearly but then we found out this is all Paul thought about this is all Paul thought about it's easy to see why that's all Jimmy Swaggert preached was a cross, isn't it? So, we're we're going to we're going to close, and we're going to we're going to do a little bit different. I can't say we'll never do this again, but but you know this is not going to turn into a, a every service kind of thing. Just, that's just like God for me to say that, and then the next time I'm in front of you guys, we do it again. But, but we, we're gonna pray, okay? Just for 12 minutes. 12 minutes, not an hour and a half, right? And, but let me just tell you something. In Acts 4, why are we doing it? Peter and John, after healing a crippled man at the gate called Beautiful, they were questioned and arrested by the authorities for healing a guy, and the high priests and the Sadducees threatened them, said, never use the name of Jesus again. And you know what they did? Acts 4, 23. Being let go, they went to their own company, reported all that they'd been threatened with. And you know what they did? You know what that church did? When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God in one accord. Together. By the end of that prayer, the building shook. By one one chapter later, revival. People were being healed by the shadow of, of Peter. After this prayer, after this, this prayer. This is your company. This is your company. So I want to pray for revival here at this church and in the Twin Cities and at other churches. I want the end time ladder rain revival to start here, up north, up north, because that is what George Washington Carver prophesied, that it would start up here and revival would flow down the Mississippi. You can pray that out. This is your own company. And so this is for 12 minutes. The clock hasn't started yet, but that's all we got to do. You can, put, you can pour it on for 12 minutes. And honestly, for an hour and a half, if I'm in an hour and a half prayer meeting, I spend 45 minutes trying to get myself to focus. Do you know what I mean? 12, this can be 12 hard kidding minutes in the spirit for God to, and if you don't do anything else, just say softly to yourself, God, bring revival to Minnesota. But we're going to do this in a form of worship. I believe the main sanctuary needs to do this on occasion, and this is for the guy that, that doesn't want to come to prayer. He's doing all he can to get to church. So the music's going to start, and Tim and Keith, they're going to start to worship, and, and, but then certain phrases will be prayed, right? And you just pray softly in tongues. If you don't pray in tongues, it's fine. You know, my mom said last night, she said, Jim, you know no one ever waits on the Lord. No one ever waits on him. Just sits and waits. He knows what we're waiting for. Sometimes you just need to wait. It's okay. Just sit there and think about him and what he did for you. The bottom line is this company, just for 12 minutes, is going to pray for revival." is going to pray for more of an awakening than, than what's already happening. It's, you're welcome here if you don't pray in tongues. Just pray in your understanding. Bottom line, it's corporate. This is your company. It can shake the Twin Cities. Just like, like in Acts 4, it shook the building. One chapter later was Revival. And this isn't just for Living Word. It's for a church called Everyday Church. River Valley, Eagle Brook, Substance, Creative Church, Emmanuel, the Grace Churches, North Heights Lutheran, Living Word Northwest, up there in Rogers, for the body of Christ as a whole in the Twin Cities and Minnesota. And I'll leave you with one phrase out of Kenneth Hagin's Bible Prayer Study Course. He simply says, believers can usher in the glory of God as they join with their company in united prayer and praise. You can usher in the glory of God, okay? So I'll see you in 12 minutes, and then we'll close.
1: You
2: of our heart, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, enlighten the eyes of our understanding with your truth, that there be an awakening in the heart of every man, woman, boy, girl, for more of you, Father, more of your life-changing presence. Father, we ask you to change us this morning, transform us into more of the likeness of who you are. Father, you said that they that hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Father, We are hungering for more of you. We're thirsty for more of you. Father, we stir ourselves up this morning. We stir up the hunger to seek you with all of our hearts. You said if we would pray, you would hear us from heaven and answer us. You said if we would seek you with all of our hearts, we would find you.
0: for your presence and for your power and we thank you for your the beginning of of an awakening we thank you for your latter reign that we know we will see